This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we talk with architect Tosin Oshinowo about Lagos as a design hotspot. We pay a visit to a newly refurbished building in a 1920s Spanish colonial revival structure and drop into the studio of esteemed British creative Faye Toogood. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Nigerian architect Tosin Oshinowo founded her Lagos-based practice CM Design Atelier in 2012. From the Nigerian capital, she also runs her own brand called Ilela, which designs contemporary furniture using local African fabrics. As a result, she's one of the leading creatives in the region, a reputation that's seen her tapped as curator of next year's Sharjah Architecture Triennial. Tosin joined us down the line to discuss her practice, and I started out by asking about a suggestion that Lagos has become a new global hotspot for architecture. Lagos is actually the new Lagos. You know, we really need to evolve what we consider as our reference point. If you look at the parameters that are brought about the city's development, they're very much those from the global south. It's really become a nodal point for both commerce and culture. It's a brilliant melting pot right now for creatives, architects, designers, artists, musicians. There's really a lot happening within the cultural space in the city. And I'm really happy to be previewing it and also to be part of it. You mentioned other creatives there. I'm curious what role these professionals and industries play in the work that architects are doing in Lagos. How important is that whole design ecosystem to the work that you're doing? There's a lot of crossing actually between cultural creatives. And I think maybe in the West, they become more parallel and streamlined. Whereas in this environment, you won't find it odd to get an artist collaborating with an architect or a product designer collaborating with an architect, you know. We're working from the same non-existent place, you know. And even in terms of materiality, I could sit with Nifemi Bello, who's a product designer, and ask him about materials that he's used for furniture that may eventually lend itself to something architectural or, or more kind of fitted in a space. Even though it's a city of, I think, 20 million people plus, the creative space is not that big, so everyone knows everyone. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like an incredibly tight-knit creative community. And I want to know, what are some of the benefits and challenges of being located in Lagos and working in a place that is rapidly developing? The structure hasn't been set. You know, we're very much an emerging economy, so it's still very possible to achieve things without having to worry about the bureaucracy of I have to do this and I have to do that. That flexibility of not having a structure means that if you're smart and you are clear about what you're trying to achieve, it's very possible to do it in this environment. The challenges are a lot of the work that is being produced now, people are very conscious to produce globally relevant work. In a place where you have very limited infrastructure or things don't work as they should like they do in other parts of the world. I mean, we don't have 24-hour power. Right now, I don't have power. My generator's on. Water can also be a challenge. And, and this is just normal living existence. Then you can imagine this even when you take it to a building site. We have a big challenge with the import of materials. 90% of what we build is from imported products. I think this is where we're actually beginning to get two factions. You have the faction of people as designers who are emulating things that have been seen in the global contemporary architecture. And you do get clients who just want that house that they've seen in Florida, in France. And then you have the faction who are very conscious of evolving 
I use the word very sparingly vernacular and I think it's more important to say contextual because it's about the reality of using materials that are local, that you can develop, designing buildings that are conscious of the environment, thinking about how the spaces will be used in a local cultural context. And if you really think about it, the architecture that was developed in the 1940s and 50s, which was a tropical modernism, from the early pioneers, Friar Otto, Jane Drew, an architect who was British who came to Nigeria, settled, married a Nigerian, Alan Von Richards, you know, he produced a lot of architecture. It was very contextually relevant, you know, and, and then there was a generation of architects who followed that, but there are very few. This kind of revolution that's happening, it's feeding back off that. And when you even look at someone like Francis Carey's work, he's very contextually relevant. He's paying attention to the environment using locally available materials with slightly more advanced materials that may be important, but it's a, it's a very healthy balance. You mentioned Francis Carey there, and I'm, I'm curious who else in West Africa and, and Nigeria is doing noteworthy uh, but perhaps unheralded work, in, in your opinion. If I think of Papa Mutayo, he just finished um, a residency for Yinka Shonibara, the Gas Foundation, where they've used laterite blocks that were made locally. You know, he's very consciously created shaded cross-ventilation, not an emphasis on artificial air conditioning. Uh, he's used louvers, you know, which is a, a system of windows that we used in the 70s, which all of a sudden became old-fashioned. So Clarence didn't want that, but, you know, he brought it back. Another building that's done by um, Adesho Kumbi is called the Abidjo Mosque. Beautiful, beautiful mosque. He really thought about, you know, creating a comfortable space. He rendered it with laterite and he's got this beautiful red hue. And then another person who's got a building that's on, which I think is so relevant and important to where we are finding ourselves culturally, it's called the Randall Center. It's not finished. It's a Yoruba history museum. What's really interesting about this building is it, it challenges us in our understanding of what a museum should be in our context. Because if you think about it culturally, we didn't have museums before colonialism. And now we, we have this repatriation of objects that are coming back in. What do we really consider a museum to be? What we understand the typology of a museum to be or what it should look like, he's also challenged in this building. Because it's such an important resource for a generation of, of young Nigerians growing up to understand culturally where we're coming from. Talking about red laterite there, I, I, I'm curious about a material use in the region. How much are designers leaning towards using stones and, and timber and, and locally produced man-made materials? In the case of developing materials locally, so contextually, that process of design and development and exploration is still very much in its infancy. And so locally what tends to happen is there's always a challenge with the durability of these materials. And I guess that's the reason why clients tend to shy away from it because if you're gonna spend quite a bit of money on, on doing a building, the last thing you want is to know that, oh, the wood I used here wasn't seasoned and that's the reason why it's now warped. Maybe it wasn't treated and termites have eaten into it. So the people who are really developing this, you know, they're really setting a stage that hopefully will make it easier for buildings to be more contextual in the future because there are no institutes doing this. This is very much bottom up, doing the exploration and sharing the knowledge with other architects informally. That's really what's happening. So for example, with Ade Shokunbi's project with the mosque where he developed this way of creating a tyrolene that used the local soil so that the building actually ends up having color without using paint. He shared that information with me and I've used it on a project that I'm doing for the UN in Maduguri. You know, he didn't have to give me that. <laughs> he could have decided to patent it. 
but you know, there's very much this idea of sharing collaboration because if we're able to develop these things and you know move them forward, we're able to then really start to produce buildings in our context. I mean, that sounds amazing. Can I ask why you think people aren't patenting their technology and, and why everyone is sharing this sort of information and, and knowledge and understanding? I've not really thought about that. And I, and I hope people don't think about it because I think if people do think about it, then people will all of a sudden become selfish. I think it's just organic. My grandmother says, when birds fly, their wings don't touch. We can all do well. You know, there's no need to be selfish. And funny enough, I'm, I'm doing a business program at the moment and, and this challenges my understanding. And, and in the business course, there's a thing of competitive advantage. You don't give away your secret source. But if people in this context don't give away their secret source, you know, this, this industry can't move. Because this is very much a model of the global north. You keep your secret source. <laughs> you patent and you, you move forward and you obviously become very wealthy from it. But I think considering where we're coming from in the context, it's so important to share. I hope that we will have more of this and not less of it in the future. That was architect Tosin Oshinowe there. Los Angeles design firm Commune has created some outstanding residential and hospitality projects in its 18 years. What's notable, however, is that every interior has a look and feel that's very different from the next and specific to its place. It's an approach applied to the recent restoration and modernisation of a historic 1920s Spanish colonial revival building in Los Angeles, where they've set up their new office. Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, paid them a visit and sent us this report. very heavy, very squeaky door, and it's at the foot of a black and white staircase, where I'm greeted by Roman Alonso. Alonso is co-founder of Commune, the LA design firm that has renovated and transformed a crumbling Spanish colonial revival building in MacArthur Park, Los Angeles, into elegant new spaces for businesses, retailers, and a restaurant. The benefactor behind the project is the art patron Nicholas Bergruen, who is breathing fresh life into some of the forlorn-looking buildings around MacArthur Park. Commune was a good choice of design partner. In its 18 years, the firm has created outstanding residential and hospitality projects, not least fit-outs for ace hotels all over the world, including the fated Kyoto Outpost. But what's notable is that every Commune interior, every architectural design, has a look and feel very different from the next. This MacArthur Park project is perhaps its most personal. Commune has moved its entire studio of 20 people into the building. And Roman and co-founder Stephen Johannex show me around their new HQ. At the door you're greeted by two earthen-coloured tapestries.
What's yeah. your name? Uh, Dante. What are you doing here? What are you working on? Oh, um, I'm just doing a little bit of typography exploration for a poster we're working on. Kind of experimenting. Um, we kind of wanted to do more of like a hand drawn direction with the letter forms and so I'm cutting out some paper right now and I'm gonna probably scan it and then see how it looks. <laughs> how is working in this space different from where Commune has been for so long? There's a lot of natural light. We have a lot of windows and then also the skylights. Nice for um, seeing color to have like natural light and artificial light. We wanted to be able to address many different areas of design, set ourselves apart from interior design firms that have a particular look and impose that look. Our interest is who are these people? How do they live? How are they different from the other project we're working on? Uh, what's the history of that building? We ask a lot of questions at the beginning about who is going to inhabit the space or enjoy the space and everything that is part of that. Um, so we work very, very closely with whoever is doing the graphics, whoever is doing the PR, whoever is doing the marketing plan, who is reaching out to the community, what are the community goals, how do we address being in that community. A successful design needs to be integrated in the community that it's in. Because that's how it becomes really something that is lasting, something that will make a difference in people's lives. It's the same process for a residence, because you really need to, re you have to know who that person is, who that, how do they live, how do they want to live, how do they want to improve their lives. And we get into these people's heads as much as we can, and then we involve them. The owner, whoever is going to run this place, has to be part of the design process. That is how they, they, they become invested in it so that it lasts, so that it's not something that is just for a moment. East Palm Springs, I think, is a good example of that. So, that, so East Palm Springs, I think, was a, it was an old hotel, wasn't it? It was a renovation work that needed to be done, bringing it into, into some kind of modern shape, if you like, but working with a mid-century original well, building. Basically a model lodge that was designed as a Howard Johnson in the 50s, then it became a Westward Ho, and then it really was abandoned basically for like 15 years before we got our hands on it. Ace Hotels at that time, they had Seattle and Portland and it was very urban and kind of rock and roll. And so from a design standpoint, how do we translate that to the desert? At the time, all the hotels in Palm Springs sort of had this sort of retro Hollywood glamour thing going on and we wanted to design something that would last and make sense for both ACE and being out in the desert. We started working on it in 2005, it opened in 2008. The question was like how do you bring a brand like ACE to Palm Springs, especially at the time, there was no reference for this. What we came down to in the end and after much brainstorming was it's about the desert experience, it's about camping. So the first thing we did was take the parking lot out, create communal spaces where the parking was, extended the rooms out into these patios. The patios were all connected. You could see the person upstairs, the person upstairs could see down into you. So it had to be a very communal thing, much like a camping site. So for the last 12 years you've been in West Hollywood, you've got this brand new space that we're seated in now, which you've designed. I wonder how that experience of these various hospitality projects has shaped now this space that we're in now and how your, your sort of vision of what that might be. 
we just wanted it to be where we could develop all the various projects and not impose any particular design because we work on so many various projects. Almost to create something that had a feeling of a, of a blank canvas, if you like, so that it's yeah. not something that then becomes overbearing in everything that you then go on to do. Right. It's about function. The lighting was extremely important and the materials and our pin-up surfaces, um, the entire office was built around function. Because the building was basically gutted, we had to start from scratch. And so we were able to really, you know, lay things out in a way that we felt was logical. And in fact, our walls are black canvases, quite literally. They're all canvas pinup because we've learned after all these years that we really need to be, put things up on the wall in order to kind of map them out. Now we know what we want and we know how to do what we wanted to do. So this space is really a reflection of that. So, oh wow, it's amazing. This big circular window that's being revealed as you're moving one of the walls to the side. So this it's is, got this great colored glass on it. Where's this come from? So this window came from our other office in West Hollywood. It's something that our friend uh, Steve Halterman created for us uh, about 15 years ago. And uh, we didn't want to leave it behind. It was, it was an exterior window at that office and we brought it in and have placed it in an interior. Our CFO, her office is right behind it. She gets a nice window, you know. <laughs> we like to keep her happy. Um, <laughs> and then we really wanted a full kitchen. Our dream has always been to feed our staff, our team. And so Valerie Gordon, who makes our chocolates, she's also a really amazing chef. So she makes lunch for us every day when we're here. And the idea is really to be able to like host friends and guests and clients also. Um, and it gives it more of a communal feeling, doesn't it? In, in keeping absolutely. with this being a commune. Try and feel like you're at home. I, I think a kitchen, a hearth is always, you know, very important. Perhaps this homely hearth atmosphere is the thread that connects communes projects. From its early days, the firm was creating individual pieces of furniture for clients to buy, and at one time sold these pieces from a tent in its former offices. The pandemic kicked the online business into overdrive, and that's got Roman and Stephen thinking about what's next. Our business quintupled within months, and all of a sudden it's like a real store. Not only do we have now um, individual customers, but we have designers that are shopping with us, and developers. So we're going to do an experiment that um, will open in September right here in this building. We're going to try it again. It will be a, will be a real, you know, physical expression of the commune shop. You heard it here first. That's, that's great to hear. So Roman, Alonso, Stephen, Johan Necht, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is fun. Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord there. Finally on the show, we visit another studio, but this time in the East End of London. Founded in 2008, Too Good is a contemporary British brand that encompasses interior design, homeware, fine art and fashion. At the helm and refusing to be constrained by a single discipline or defined way of working is Faye Too Good. Known for her sculptural approach to furniture, we met the founder at the House of Too Good to learn more about her making process. In here, this is the main space downstairs. This is the space that we just play around with the most. So sometimes it'll be complete chaos in here and we're 
painting garments, making uh, hand-painted coats, or we're creating a collage, or we're, you know, making a final artwork or a model of a chair out of clay or something. You know, it's definitely the room for play. Lots of people ask me about the process of working in the studio and how it works with all the people involved in the studio. And, you know, I think when I set it up, I was interested in finding other people that didn't want to be pigeonholed or, you know, that may have trained as an architect but was interested in fashion or someone that trained in fashion design but actually, you know, was really interested in industrial design. It's that cross-disciplining that's always been interesting to me. A project will come in and we'll all get round the table and we'll workshop it together. You know, we will find a way of, of making it work and we will question it and we'll look at it from all angles. And for me, it makes the design process potentially more rigorous. It makes it more fun. It just means that none of us really get bored because we're always working on something completely different. The kitchen is, we put together just really simply when we moved in, it's just a a little um, sink made of some stone and marble that I found in a junk shop and it's just provided the perfect centrepiece for our kitchen. Up on the walls again we have a really long shelf filled with sculptures and maquettes, um, things over the years that have been made, some of them have been transformed into pieces of furniture or artwork and others have never made it into fruition. For me it's really nice to keep these things. Sculpture has always been at the essence of who I am. You know, it's when I studied fine art, I was working in, more in sculpture in 3D than in 2D. And it's something that I return to constantly. It's sort of the way I know how to communicate and it's the way that I know how to create something that feels uniquely too good or unique to the studio. Form, shape, geometry, sculpture... These are all words that mean exactly the same thing and I have quite literally tried to create my own A to Z of form and shape. I had twins five years ago and after that I just locked myself away in the studio with some of the guys here and we created endless, and I mean hundreds, of sculptures that are now all archived in boxes and those sculptures are coming out now to be made in stone or in wood or recreated in bronze or they've sort of provided a, a new geometry for me whether it's the button on a coat that's made of something you know made of ceramic or whether it's in a huge sculpture for a, a museum it's that play with shape and it's I guess it's the questioning why why does that shape have to be that way you know why does a chair have to be shaped in a certain way we have endless coats and we have endless chairs we don't need anything new in the world particularly, but if I'm going to try and contribute to it, it needs to have its own shape and its own being, its own sculpture. So it's, it's so important and fundamental to what I do. One of the hazards of the house is that we have two sets of staircases. They're very narrow and it's, you know, it's a little old London house and somehow it's really higgledy-piggledy and it's quite dangerous coming up and down these steps, but so far we haven't lost anybody. Up on the first floor is where furniture and design happens. Um, it's also where my very important materials library is. And this is, for me, you know, the starting point of any collection and any piece, anything that we're working on starts with this wall and it's um, a series of shelves filled with materials and, and on that shelf you'll find anything from a 
pressed glass gun to a perfect tube of brass to a sculpture made of masking tape, a huge dollop of resin that looks like a massive fish eye, experimentations with bits of clay and trying to make the ultimate mud chair. We had to make a series of different um, experiments. So there's a, you know, a wide variety of materials and, and that, again, whether it's a coat or chair, that's where we start. For me, materials are really at the essence of everything that we do. They tend to be, you know, the, the starting point for a project. It's very difficult to say which materials are quintessentially too good. If you had to reduce my palette and you had to take away all those materials and only leave me with a few, it would always be canvas, clay, wire, paper and cardboard. You know, they're kind of, although they're the most simple and ubiquitous materials they're kind of really essential to too good and you know when we started our fashion collection we used only artist prime canvas it was all we could get hold of it was all we could afford we couldn't afford meters of cashmere if you can make something look really great out of cardboard and basic canvas then you know when you translate it into bronze or cashmere of course it's going to work it's a bit more of a challenge to me to make something really beautiful and valuable, I don't mean that in terms of, you know, fiscally valuable, but, it, you know, just in terms of valuable to somebody, relevant to somebody, if you can make those out of the most simple materials, I think somehow it connects to people more, you know, there's something more honest about it. But there is a magpie within me, so you will always find some gold. <laughs> there's always a bit of glinty gold going on for me, you know, and sometimes that literally is tin foil, gold, bronze, and other times it's a recycled plastic. But it's just this, it's the combination and tension between those materials that I'm interested in. On the board at the moment, we've got various projects. You know, some of these may happen this year, some might happen in five years, you never really know. Making objects and making furniture can sometimes take a huge amount of time. And actually at the moment on the, the board is one of my favourite collections, which is a series of ceramics based around natural shapes. So there's seed pods, leaves and pumpkins and gourds. And these are starting to help me form a collection of shapes for ceramics, which we're hoping to happen next year. We work not only for ourselves, but also for other brands where we, we create collaborations. And so... I think it's important that, you know, we always have that bank of drawings of things that we, we're working on. It's so interesting, that idea of process and what comes first. Is it the model making? Is it the drawing? Where does drawing fit into this? I have to say, when I started it, I immediately went to drawing. It was the only way that I knew how to communicate to a maker or a manufacturer or an artisan what I wanted to create. But in the last three or four years, I've almost put drawing to one side as part of my process. And now I tend to go straight into 3D. So it's a play of model making and maquette making that is actually informing the shapes and the vocabulary that I'm using now rather than drawing. So right at the top of the house, this is the the fashion room. This is the room where my sister is based and um, this is where all the pattern cutting happens and it's where the start of the fashion collections, you know, form their life up here. And so 
it's always a mess. <laughs> it's the messiest studio, but I love it for that. Um, there's always bits of fabric on the floor and bins full of extra fabric that we're working on, experimentation of painting onto fabric, patterns everywhere. It's definitely the kind of the room where it's most active and lively, I think. I avoid a label, I avoid being pigeonholed. So, you know, whether I'm called an artist or a designer, fashion designer, you know, it, these are just, for me, they're just slightly unwanted badges. But um, at the same time, I really recognise and embrace trade and craftsmanship. When I started the fashion collection, so we have the photographer jacket or the doorman acrobat trousers or um, the baker's trousers, you know, the draftsman shirt. They all have their own trade names and they all have a passport inside listing that trade, but also all the initials of the people involved in making it. Although I can't bear labels, I kind of also acknowledge them and embrace trade, artisan, manufacturing. By doing that for the clothing, it sort of made me have a reason to make a garment you know okay if we're going to make a jacket well what why who needs this jacket and what do they need it for well a photographer needs giant pockets so let's give them giant pockets and they need to be able to move around a lot so the back has to be really really square and not all tailored in like a normal tailored jacket so those sorts of things have given us a reason for making that garment and you know we have these trades and we need to look after them we have things here up in the studio that are not just fashion-based and I think that's one of the things that I'm excited about this studio is that there's a great cross-discipline going on between the floors so whether you trained in fashion or whether you trained in furniture design the idea is that in this studio that you can you can work in both rooms and that actually it's as valid to, to have a furniture designer working on something for fashion etc. So yeah you will always find um, bits of other materials that may look like they belong to furniture but actually they are coming into the fashion room because we will be inspired by the gloss on them or the raw edge or something about a particular material that we can then try and translate into a fashion garment. Tinker is the way that I used to describe myself. It's one that I feel comfortable with because a tinker essentially is a master of nothing but likes tinkering with everything and that probably is the best word I can use to describe what I do. You know, I don't claim to be the ultimate fashion designer or, you know, the superb craftsman or, you know, it's not really about that. I have found the equivalent of my shed and this is the Red Church Street and I like tinkering in it and if people are interested and find it relevant and want to buy it or connect with it in some way, that's great for me. Faye Toogood there, speaking from her London studio. Her new book, Drawing, Material, Sculpture, Landscape, is published by Fyodon and available at all good bookstores now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Or, if you prefer print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans, who also edited the show with assistance from Chris Ablakwa. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me at nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>